One of the reasons that I have been able to acquire languages is ironically because I don't really care about acquiring languages. It's actually because I want to make local friends. So I don't put language learning on any kind of pedestal. And I think people who really admire languages, they may have this perfectionist mindset. Whereas I'm okay with making a few grammatical mistakes and getting my point across. Welcome to Yaro's podcast, where you'll discover the stories behind world-class performers, business builders, and enlightened leaders. Do you suffer from email addiction? Yeah. I have, and I'm a recovering email addict. Thankfully, I took a step that broke me free from the email trap. Most business owners spend a lot of time during their working day inside their inbox, and it may be even bleeding into your home life where you spend hours at night or first thing in the morning attempting to clear that email inbox. Now, it's not surprising because email is where often the most important messages come. We get messages from our clients, our potential customers, from our contractors, our employees, possibly friends and family, everything going on with our lives and our businesses. So the idea of outsourcing or handing over that email inbox to someone else is not something you may have considered before, but I want to tell you it is by far the most powerful productivity step you can take is to hire someone to handle your email for you. It frees you up so you have more time to do whatever you'd like, whether it's growth activities in your business, creating products, working on marketing campaigns and relationships with other people, or maybe just spending more time with your friends and your family or working on your own health, exercising, taking holidays and so forth. When you're glued to your email inbox, it keeps you away from all those activities. Now, the strange thing is we're usually very comfortable outsourcing all kinds of other aspects of our business. But for some reason, email is one of the last things or perhaps something you never have considered outsourcing to someone else. Well, I have some exciting news. I actually have a company called InboxDone.com. You may have heard of it. We provide a human being to take over your email. I've actually had someone handle my own email inboxes for over 12 years now. So I took the step to break free many, many years ago and I haven't gone back. I now could never go back to doing my own email. It would be very difficult. And I'd like you to experience the same sense of freedom. So if you're curious on how exactly someone could take over your email and, and how the process works and how you can come to trust someone to handle that all-important inbox, I recommend you head over to inboxdone.com and check out my company. There's a real opportunity here for you to potentially change your life and certainly change your business for the better. Create some freedom, some time by handing over that inbox to someone who should really spend more time there than you do because that's their job and it's not your job. Inboxdone.com. Check it out. Hi, this is Yarrow and welcome to another podcast episode. I'm excited today to have a guest who's had a lot of success in a teaching topic, a highly exciting topic for a lot of people around the world. I know uh, I have to give a shout out to Laura. She's such a super fan. Laura is my uh, project manager. She loves my guests. So uh, I'm doing this for you, Laura. <laughs> and my guest today has, well, he's got such a large audience. I think one of the person I've most heard mentioned when it comes to the topic of language learning online. So that I think is a a huge claim to fame. He's also a, a National Geographic recognized uh, language learner, a huge digital nomad traveler, 1.5 million blog readers, huge YouTube channel. So there's lots to talk about. I'd like to welcome Benny Lewis to the show. Hi, Benny. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. 
Benny, I actually visited Dublin for the first time ever a couple of months ago, so I believe that's your home. Am I right? I'm about two hours outside of Dublin in Ireland, yeah. Okay. Uh, where, whereabouts were you born? I like to describe it as the arsehole end of nowhere uh, <laughs> when it comes to <laughs> the idea that most people would probably have of Ireland. Okay. But um, just the middle of Ireland, essentially. So when I went on my little uh, tour around uh, the hills and the, the valleys, I would not have stopped in your town along the way, is most likely the case. Most likely, yeah. Okay. Now, growing up, were you like planning to go to school? What, what was the future in your mind as a, a teenager or even younger? Did you think business? Did you think a career? I want to travel since you obviously have that passion. So essentially, even deep into my adult years, I resisted the idea of getting into uh, business. So if I had to give a theme to growing up, it would be science and tech. And I actually ended up studying electronic engineering in university. And that's where a lot of my passions lie. So I don't have any actual academic background in languages. And the reason I've had so much success with it is in part because of that. I don't speak as, as someone who's a linguist who studied this for up to the PhD level. I'm kind of more talking about a fellow adult struggling language learner because mm -hmm. I only spoke English when I was 21. And then I started my travels and I learned, like, despite my technical background, I learned how to get into language learning. And I kind of grew the audience around that. And having a technical background helped a ton. So in terms of growing, like, it actually, for me, the blog was for a very long time, my way of trying to dispel this myth of the language gene. And I tried to get that across as much as I could. So that was my focus. And I did indeed resist with the idea of turning it into an actual business beyond just uh, helping me to cover some expenses while I traveled. And uh, since I changed that mindset, it's definitely uh, grown a lot more. So, you know, as a, a student studying electrical engineering, were you thinking, at some point when I graduate, I'm going to you know, get an engineering job? Or were you very clear in your head, I'm going to find a way to travel? I don't know how, I'll work odd jobs. What was your, your mindset? My mindset was very much to stay in the academic world forever. So I was planning to continue my studies to do a PhD, maybe eventually to become a university professor. I had no real objectives of getting to know the world or to travel. And what happened was the course that I studied is one of the most difficult ones in the country with a 70% failure rate. Oh, wow. And I, I made it into the final year and I even passed my final exams. But then I was essentially in the average of the remaining people in the class. And just this huge sense of disappointment came over me that I've essentially put my entire life into this degree and to becoming the best engineer that I could. And I'm essentially just average. I wanted to be the absolute top of my class and I wasn't. So that essentially meant I needed to reset my entire uh, list of priorities. And that's why I had the idea of moving to Spain and just to live abroad for a while and see what else the world had for me. Because that's uh, I definitely did not have any kind of long-term plan. And the vast majority of the success I've had has, has been from random experiments that have led to lucky discoveries 
and the fact that I'm okay with making mistakes and I'm okay with going down paths that may lead to nowhere. Mm -hmm. So very few parts of my story are due to long-term planning. Wow, so your decision to travel was very much like an inflection point where you had had to change direction and were feeling quite, uh, probably a little bit lost, I would guess, with with, uh, what to do next, which is not an uncommon decision to travel as a result of that, uh, that sort of discover yourself plan, although it's strange often you travel and, and that lost sense can come with you, but at least you gain a lot of experience. Can you tell us then, so, you know, you book a ticket to Spain, but I'm assuming you're not exactly uh, independently wealthy, so you, you couldn't travel perpetually just on your own dime. So what was the plan financially with, as your travels began? Well, one thing that, of course, is extremely different in Ireland is the complete lack of student loans. So I was definitely not rolling in money, but I was I was essentially starting from zero. So I didn't have any debts to pay. And what this meant was, I think for a good five or six years, I only needed about $1,000 a month to cover everything. This would be all of my travel expenses, my accommodation, my food, my entertainment. So I could actually, for a long time, work jobs even if they paid quite poorly, and I'd still be able to live the travel lifestyle. And um, it's something I, I know is, uh, is, is harder to wrap your head around coming from the perspective of also having student loans and especially looking at the cost of living of life in America. And I currently live right outside of New York, so I'm well aware of that. But even in those cases, you could still potentially go to cheaper countries And I did that for a lot of my travels. I would end up in South America or in India. And I initially, again, for the first few years, my plan was to be an engineer, maybe in an international company, somewhat using my languages. But I had another one of those inflection points where I was in Paris working as an intern. I put my heart and soul into the job. And when the time came that they offered me a promotion, it was barely any difference from what I had before. And I could mm. see that instead of jumping up the ladder in the company, this would be like a 30 or 40 year struggle to get anywhere near the top. So that kind of made me realize that, okay, even this situation isn't going to work for me. And that's that's what got me into thinking about working online and uh, potentially bringing my work with me while I traveled. So when did the language learning come into it? Was it like, you know, day one you land in Spain, I got to learn a language, let's figure it out? Was, was that what happened? Yeah, and I, I always tell people that effectively, I again, I did not have a very good long-term plan with this. I arrived in Spain with this expectation, and I think a lot of people listening probably would feel the same way, that by living in Spain, you will just learn Spanish. And I, I, I guess there's this mentality that if I inhale Spanish air, as I get off the plane, I'll exhale Espanol. <laughs> You know, and that definitely didn't happen for me. And if anything, I just proved even further that I don't have this language gene because I lived for six months initially in Spain without learning any real Spanish, just gravitated towards the other English speakers. And I barely learned a few phrases. So it does not solve your problems moving to the country. And that was part of my whole learning process, too. Okay, so can you take us forward? You're in Spain. I'm assuming you know, you're having a good time exploring new things. Did you decide, all right, I'm just going to try and visit as many countries as I can? Or were you like, at some point, no, I want to stay put and learn a language? Like, How did the travels progress? 
Well, what happened was while I was still in Spain, I still had this mentality that I don't have the language gene. I'm a technically minded person. Maybe there's some left brain, right brain stuff going on here. And that was essentially just my worldview. And for those six months, the initial six months that I did not learn Spanish, multiple people as part of the work exchange program I was on would be arriving with a similar low level of Spanish to what I had. But then after a couple of months, they would actually be able to converse in Spanish. And initially, I wrote it off as, well, they just have the brain for it. But the problem is the exchange program I was on was for engineers and architects. So mm -hmm. they also had this technical brain. And little by little, it kind of chipped away at this philosophy of I'm just not naturally going to be good at languages if I kept seeing so much counterproof. So after those six months, I decided that my main priority was I really and truly wanted to figure out how to speak Spanish. And I tried many different things. I tried going into a group class and being the dumbest guy in that class, and that did nothing for my self-confidence. Mm -hmm. I tried reading a book with a dictionary, and it took me two weeks to get to page two. I tried many, many different things that didn't work. And effectively, what I ultimately tried that changed everything was from talking to so many people and trying to see what's the secret, what's the secret. They were telling me I was doing all of these things to work around learning Spanish, but I wasn't practicing at all. I wasn't getting out there and speaking. And I would retort and say, I'm not ready to speak yet. And the, the thing is, you're never going to feel ready. And this, this kind of uh, sparked this idea from what they told me that you do need to just speak the language immediately. And I tried that experiment and that's what changed everything for me by speaking Spanish on a daily basis and accepting the fact that I sounded a little bit like a Spanish version of Tarzan. Mm -hmm. um, I was able to begin making progress and that started my whole philosophy on learning languages in general. And then after six more months, I reached a decent stage of Spanish and all my friends were tied to the university year and they were leaving Spain. So I had to decide what to do. And I did, again, I didn't have any long-term plans, but I didn't feel like going back to Ireland. I didn't feel like going into the workforce just yet. So I just randomly decided to go to Italy instead and just okay. do the same kind of thing. And I learned Italian that way. And I did this little dash towards like close by European countries and I never really had this long-term plan. And I ultimately made it to France, having learned three languages. And then I got that big disappointment in terms of uh, my career path. Mm -hmm. And that's when I decided I needed to figure out how to bring my work with me. Because I do like learning languages. I do like living in other countries. But this traditional going into work and you know working up the ladder, that's not for me. Mm -hmm. Is that when the blog started? No, no. So this is way back in 2005. Okay. Because I started my travels 2003. So it's been uh, essentially 16 years that I've been on the road. And what happened was I really put my brain into what could I do to help me travel. And the entrepreneurial blogging world wasn't necessarily so apparent that it was an obvious solution to me. Mm -hmm. So I became a freelance translator. So this is what I used for about four years to travel the world, where people would email me technical engineering documents in French or Spanish or Italian, and I would email it back to them in English as an engineer, native English speaker would write it. 
and they paid me in euro so I could actually live quite well. So even though it wasn't the same scalability as uh, the kind of work I do now, I was still earning much, much more compared to people who would have been in local countries in earning in the local currency. So this is when my nomadic digital entrepreneur lifestyle essentially really kicked off and I could travel mm. way faster and I could I started having uh, much nicer apartments where I would host couch surfers and I ended up hosting more than 2000 couch surfers Whoa. in that period. Mhm. And I used couch surfing as a means to practice my languages because I would host people who were natives of those languages and it was it was great that I would consistently get to use those languages regardless of where I was. How were you getting the language translation to work? Did you have a network of engineering friends who you just became the language guy or where were the clients coming from? So what I did was I, at that stage, I had gotten enough jobs teaching English in multiple countries that I could very easily have gotten work in any English school because I have the diplomas and the experience. And so what I did was I found an English school in the middle of Italy that also did translations. And the pay they offered was pretty bad, but I told them that if they guided me and taught me how to be a translator, then I would work in their English school. And I did teaching English half the time for a pretty bad wage, but then in exchange, the other half of the time, they trained me as a translator. And I took that training and then I learned what I found from them, that a lot of their work came from outsourcing companies. And I found my own outsourcing company and they essentially just emailed me every day the documents and they paid it directly into my Irish bank account once a month, the total amount that I had earned. And that was it. I didn't actually need to do any footwork once I found that outsourcer, because obviously they took a percentage of the, the work. And all I had to worry about was just translate and send back. Okay, so you hacked the system in a lot of ways. You, you figured out how to travel perpetually, how to learn languages. You found a fairly reliable income source. You must have been thinking in your mind, okay, this is great. I don't want to stop. Or, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't sound like you were always thinking, you know, two or three years in the future. It's like, I'm enjoying what I'm doing now. Let's keep doing it. But what was motivating you? Like, was it just, I want to acquire more languages or I just want to meet more people? What were you thinking at that time? Well, one of the reasons that I have been able to acquire languages is ironically because I don't really care about acquiring languages. It's actually because I want to make local friends. And what that means is I don't put language learning on any kind of pedestal. And I think people who really admire languages, they may have this uh, perfectionist mindset. And if anything, that holds them back from speaking it because they're even more aware of their mistakes. Whereas I'm okay with making a few grammatical mistakes and getting my point across. And that means that initially I'm able to get that momentum. And then later on, I'm able to reach the stage where I can start tidying it up and get to a more professional level in the language. So um, I didn't really have any language goals, as it were, but one reason that I was able to travel as long as I have, because I've met people who have maxed out on their travel after just a few years. And the main thing that distinguished the theme of my travels was being able to truly spend time with locals. And I think when you travel as an English speaker, you will have wonderful experiences. You will meet local people who speak English to you. You'll meet fellow Westerners who, like you, speak English, but you don't truly get to spend time with the locals 
unless it's through some kind of an interpreter or it's in a country where they just all have a high level of English. There are so many wonderful experiences you can have with people locally when you use their language. And that has made the travel experience endlessly interesting for me. And it's why I still haven't run out of uh, energy or patience even after all of this time. <laughs> okay, so I can see uh, yeah, the passion obviously kept you going. And here we are interviewing you really about the same thing that started all the way back then. But take us forward. So you're obviously in a great situation, but you haven't mentioned any of the, the next business building steps in terms of you know, your blog and uh, your course, your book, your YouTube channel, becoming a speaker, all of that was still ahead of you. So what led to that after you know, having this job doing translations for engineering documents? Did you then go, okay, I can teach people something about language learning, let's start a blog? It's actually interesting that I, for a long time, I had seen other people doing travel blogs and I just initially thought to myself, I don't have any writing experience, so who am I to write a blog? And ironically, someone who I'm now a friend with, who I'll never tell, <laughs> wrote a blog post that was so terrible that it actually made me question like, what it takes to be a blogger. And I realized like their premise Ouch. was bad. They were made mistakes in the in the article. And I was like, I could do this. And I think this is this was the eureka moment when it came to blogging and getting into this space, is that the barrier is not as high as people think. And even back in 2009, it was still there was still that mentality of it's too late. There are too many people already who have a travel-related blog. You know, what's the point in starting one? But the major difference was in all of my travels, something that I found frustrating was that people would tell me I'm naturally talented in languages. Mm. And like I said, I struggled for those six months in Spain. I barely passed my languages that I studied in school. And it's, I am by no means a nat naturally talented. This is all just me making mistakes and having certain techniques. So that's what inspired me to start the blog. And it's why I say I didn't really have any kind of a, an entrepreneurial mindset. I just, because uh, I saw the money coming from my translation work as, as more than enough to keep me going while I traveled. So I wanted to make the blog a way to encourage other people and a way to shut people up from saying you're just a natural genius. Because I really did not like hearing that when it came to language learning. And then what happened in terms of the business aspect was after I had been writing it for maybe six or seven months, it grew very quickly, and I, I did learn a lot from following other bloggers for many years in terms of marketing and using psychology to get people's attention and so on. But again, it wasn't really business related. But what happened was I met Chris Gillibo in Bangkok at a meetup that he was organizing. And there were several other, it was a kind of a mecca period of all these bloggers coming together where like the same period of time that I was meeting uh, Nomadic Matt and mm. Jody from Legal Nomads, Gary from Everything Everywhere, all of wow. these travel bloggers. We just happened to be in Thailand at the same time. And Chris had a, a sizable audience already. So he was the one that we were at the meetup I went to that we were kind of there to see. And something he did that I really appreciated is he took the time to sit down with each person and have a talk with them about their business and their entrepreneurial struggles and so on. And I told him I wanted to make a difference in the world, encouraging people to learn language. And he told me that I should write an ebook about it. Because at the time, ebooks were essentially what courses and subscription-based models are these days. Mm. So 
I didn't really think of it before then, and I didn't think of making any money from it. But my initial plan was to make a little bit of a, a side income so I could put a bit more time into my blog. And that was the plan. But my launch of that ebook went so well that I could actually overnight completely quit my work as a freelance translator. It's because over the, the first year of the blog, there was no marketing to it in terms of uh, selling. I didn't have any, any advertising. I didn't need to push any products on people because of my other work. So the audience that grew was very authentically connected to what I was trying to, to get out there. And when I did finally come up with something to sell, they were actually really hungry for it. They wanted to see more than just disconnected, disjointed blog posts with random bits of uh, advice. They wanted a structured book they could follow start to finish that had my advice on how to learn a language. That's an amazing result to, to basically get a full-time income from your, your first attempt at you know, monetizing a blog. I know there's so many people listening or thinking, what did he write? How did he get such a large audience? You know, how did he come up with, or even simple things like, what was your schedule? Like you were writing once a week, once a month, you know, once a day. Can you break down a little bit of what you see as the reasons for the growth of your blog, and also, you know, why you were able to sell as much of your ebook? Were you, uh, you know, a masterful copywriter and you had an amazing sales page, or did you have affiliates, or was it 100 percent your audience? What made this work? Because that's what my audience are all trying to do. Sure. Well, one first thing I'll say is, again, I'm not somebody who makes long-term plans. I actually, I have ADHD. I'm not very good at thinking about anything beyond the next 24 hours. So I definitely did not have that kind of level of structure. And I didn't have the organization skills to set up affiliates and other people to promote my stuff or anything. But what I did do for that entire year as I was growing my audience was I focused on a unique story that really got people's attention. So for instance, the theme of my blog posts were very much in your face. I was not trying to softly give advice. I would say, doing this is dumb, let's do this instead. And that's, even to this day, that kind of way of writing is not as commonly done. People are always worried about whose toes they'll step on. And I didn't really think about those issues when I was coming up with the content of my blog. I just wanted to very boldly give my advice. But then in terms of what I truly feel made the actual sales, when my page went live, it was definitely not the copy. Copy was terrible. It was not necessarily the product even, because my ebook, I simply wrote it in Microsoft Word and clicked File, Save as PDF. <laughs> this is not something extraordinarily complex. And it was, to be honest, a really ugly document. You know, no images in it and poorly formed text and so on. Okay. So it was nothing like that. It was no level of organization. What actually made the sales was my video. I had an embedded video where I spoke to the camera in multiple languages. So I told my story I demonstrated, first I said I struggled in languages like you, so people would relate to it. And then I broke into these other languages where the video was both entertaining to watch because you would see one guy speak multiple languages, but also I was indeed pitching the product. And I was saying, you know, I've written on my blog how I do this, but it's very unorganized and it has lots of anecdotes. So I created this book so you would have one place to go to get 
my specific tips on how to learn a language. And that ultimately made the sales because the page was terrible. I, I used a very simple e-junkie system to sell the actual file. And if I remember the copy, it, like I couldn't afford to get any kind of help along those lines. Over the years, I did start hiring copywriters and uh, website designers who made uh, things like actual buy buttons. I think at the time to <laughs> buy the product, you would literally click on a hyperlinked text buy here. It was really not the most beautiful sales page ever. And yet I made enough sales to completely transform things. And I think another thing that made a big difference here as people are listening is you would imagine something like a launch like this is something that would take maybe a very long time planning out and have a lot of structure to it. But I'm telling you, my product was ugly. I was proud of it, but there were still lots of mistakes in it. People pointed out spelling mistakes even after I sold it to them. And what I did, my whole philosophy is to learn as you go. So I made that first ebook, which was not that great, but still good enough. I got feedback and then I pumped that into version two. Mm. And that's the model that I worked on. And I think too many people are too focused on the end goal of having this perfect product and having the absolute best sales page that they don't realize that if you had an okay product and an okay sales page, you could start making a little bit of money now and start doing tests and start getting feedback to see how you can improve that with time. Mm -hmm. This has been my whole philosophy with everything. This is how I learn languages. I don't have this end goal of thinking I'm gonna master the language. I'm just thinking, do you know what? I'm gonna to speak today. I'm gonna to see how can I improve my current day speaking skills. This kind of short-term way of looking at things, which is a consequence of ADHD, is something I've used to my benefit because it has a much more of a ship it mentality attached to it, that you create stuff immediately. Do you remember the audience size at the time you first released the book? Because I know, I mean, I love your advice of just getting something out there, but there'll be people saying, but do I need 100 readers a day, 1,000? Like nowadays, it's all about subscribers, so it might be a 1,000 email subscribers. Did you even think about that? Like, Did you think, I now have enough audience to try and sell something. And was there a number you were working towards? Do you even remember the stats from back then? I, I, I kind of remember, but I definitely don't remember having a number I was working towards. Okay. I, again, that's just not part of my, my whole philosophy on life. But one thing that I do appreciate, again, going back to Chris Gillibo, and I, I owe a lot to that one conversation I had with him, is he suggested that I create an email list. And my God, was that probably the best advice out of everything that I've ever gotten? Because 10 years later, I now have a 300,000 subscriber email list with a 40% open rate. Because wow. one thing I do is every six months, I purge my list. So if I didn't do that, I'd probably have one or two million people right now. But I continually purge it so that I have... Uh, good engagement, and I'm not getting marked as potential spam in inboxes and so on. And I started with that, and I think by the time I launched my ebook, I had maybe 1,000 email subscribers. Okay. And that was more than enough. Especially keep in mind, I think if you're thinking in terms of like if someone listening to this has a family and they're paying a mortgage and so on, their goal for how how much they'd need to be able to earn to quit their job is going to be a much higher number than 
how me as a 27 year old single guy who was living out of a backpack. Mm. So like my budget was dramatically lower. And that's something people listening need to keep in mind is it's not just about how can I make more money? But if you examine your entire life and how you're spending money, if you can reduce that as much as possible, which I know is easier said than done for a lot of people, but if you can come up with ways to reduce that, it makes the goal of being able to quit your job a lot easier. And I think maintaining a certain living standard is the reason that some people would never be able to do that because they they need to have their you know picket fences and big house and whatever. Mm. And that that's kind of that is something you can work up towards. But something people forget when they hear stories of people like me is a lot of us were doing this in in cheap countries while living cheaply. So we only needed to make a certain amount to be able to live off what we were making online. Mm. And that made it a lot easier to continue growing and growing what we spend on a day-to-day basis with what we were earning on on a day-to-day basis. Right. Yeah, it's a good point. I remember I actually had a similar story to you. Uh, it was 2007 when I first attempted to sell my own product from a blog. And actually, it was going to be an ebook before a couple of mentors of mine convinced me to do a, a membership subscription model. But everything else, similar story, you know, thousand people on my email list, uh, made enough money to live off, etc. The thing I'm curious about your story, though, it's an ebook, so it's a one-time sale, but you're obviously getting new email subscribers. So after this first campaign or this first launch, this first income stream, were you thinking, all right, this is it, I'm going to keep doing this, this is how I'm going to make a living, stop everything else, go all in on blogging and selling my ebook, or was that not the case yet? I had made so much more than I expected from that first sale that I did essentially decide that I was going to, I didn't necessarily decide I was going to quit work as a translator, but I made a very bold risk of putting my price as a translator up a significant notch and to see if my outsourcer would bite. And it was a risk worth taking and they did not bite, which put the pressure more on me earning from the blog. So I was able to take that risk where I could have continued working as a translator, but I still wanted to put as much time as possible into the blog itself. Okay, so take us forward. You've got a blog that's working, you've got your first product, you're still able to travel. Uh, were you thinking, uh, I just need to do more content, reach more people, grow my email list, and, and that's the path forward? Uh, somewhat. The way you phrased it makes it sound like I, I was a lot more organized than <laughs> I was at the time. But essentially, what was working for me in terms of growth, because I had no idea about SEO. I actually didn't, didn't do any SEO on my blog for the first, uh, I think, five years that it existed. Oh, wow. I got all of my traffic from pure shares and social media and so on. So fortunately, I do SEO these days. I still, to be honest, don't even understand it. I have someone else deal with all of that, you know? Benny, do you mind if I ask then, with the social shares, especially like 2009, I'm thinking dawn of Facebook, maybe. What were you doing to to grow your audience? So one thing that was constantly giving me traffic was the story aspect of what I was doing. So when you think of the title, Fluent in Three Months, to some people that implies maybe I've got some you know, six pack ab in two weeks concept (laughs) I'm trying to sell people. But in actuality, that represents my philosophy and language learning of having specific deadlines in specific times, like specific goals in specific times. And so every three months I had a new project. 
And that was a new story for people to follow. Mm. And because that story was changing so dramatically from, you know, Portuguese one day to maybe American Sign Language another day, what that meant is I was constantly breaking through to completely different audiences. And I was getting the traffic from them. And I went out of my way to write controversial posts. So as an example, when I first took on Hungarian, everyone told me it's the hardest language ever, it's the hardest language ever. And I really hated that because as a learner, it's very discouraging to hear that. So not to put myself off as a genius, because again, that was never my goal, but more to encourage other people who may be coming to Hungarian themselves. I wrote a blog post that was entirely about why Hungarian is easy. And you can imagine the controversy around that when Hungarian people themselves, it hurts their feelings to hear their language is easy. <laughs> so they would share it out of anger. They'd oh, wow. say, what's this idiot Irish guy saying? He, he doesn't know anything. And then people who would need the encouragement would share it and people who would see certain insights in it would share it. So it was mostly based on that. I got lots of traffic from old social media systems like StumbleUpon used to send me loads of traffic. And I Dig remember... delicious. Yeah, delicious. That was one of them for sure. So I, I did get lots, lots from those many different audiences. But to be honest, it was mainly people just sharing my link directly in whatever way it could have been. Like people shared my email list directly because mm. I would try. I've been bad at consistency in some forms. But one thing I have not failed on in 10 years is I have written at least that one Friday email every single week for the last 10 years. And that is one of the reasons I have a good open rate. I'm not surprising people after months of no contact and they're like, who is this guy? Right. And, you know, it's one of the things is I, I try to make the content of that email interesting, try to make it a personal story of how I've struggled with the language in a way that I'm hoping will inspire them. So they would share that email. And then, of course, within the email, I'd have links to the blog and so on. So I don't think I had a, one source like that, but I definitely was constantly... I would have this crazy idea of a ridiculous concept of a blog post that I know would rattle some cages that would, but my goal was, would I be able to inspire people with this post? Mm -hmm. So other people would be writing posts of why Hungarian is impossible. And I would always go for the theme of why you can do a lot more than you think you can do, which I never really knew until I started producing it, that that is controversial. In a lot of niches, it's fine to say that, but in an academic niche, there's a certain amount of pride in, in a lot of people that I've achieved something that's very hard, therefore I'm smart. And I was going against that and I was going out of my way to say I've achieved this and it's not because I'm smart. Right. It's because it's actually easy and there are techniques and uh, in such a way that people can relate to it, feel inspired to do it themselves. And that's kind of the theme of how I kept growing it over time. Okay, so a, a counterintuitive, almost argumentative, controversial style of marketing or even just coming up with ideas for topics. I know one of the people I used to see as a mentor many years ago talked about simple idea, you know, write a blog post on how to lose weight by eating more and exercising less and you'd get 
a lot of attention to that because it just goes against the norm. So it sounds like your entire philosophy is built on that and it's worked amazingly. You haven't mentioned YouTube yet, so can you take us forward in your story? So when does YouTube come into this? When does your ebook turn into a course? When does it turn into, I don't want to say a real business, but you know, a business that's not just you sitting here writing a, an ebook on your a Word document? Like what happened next? Yeah, so it ultimately expanded like slowly the traffic and so on. And I would with time just need to take on more people to do more things. And it has been initially a struggle to let go of the control freak in me wanting to have every aspect of everything that I would understand and be able to control it. But ultimately, I accept that I am a machine of pure errors. I make mistakes all the time. I am not perfect in the vast majority of things that I do. So that's made it easier for me to hire and outsource to other people because I trust in their expertise. And it's what meant that I could initially start to grow the team and have someone who handles my emails for me because I would get so many emails from people asking for language learning tips and I would be able to hire someone who did copy. So the ebook, I expanded that gradually into an online login website, still not subscription-based. I definitely would agree with the wisdom of using a subscription-based model, but actually to this day, I don't have any subscription-based products. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's been all one-off sales that I've made it to this point from now. And I have, with time, just added more and more content to that. As I've seen, people have needed it, made language-specific products, and then I got picked up by actual publishers who wanted to publish a book based on it. My first book became an international bestseller because of all of the interest around it. And over the last few years, I've been kind of more interested in really making a significant difference to the language learning and teaching space. So I've worked with uh, course producers and got my course into a couple of universities. But then rolling back a little bit, the YouTube channel was actually the first thing I started on this road, long before the blog. Because oh. like I said, I didn't feel I was ready to write, but I absolutely felt I was ready to make videos. I've been making videos on a camcorder since I was six. Okay. I was definitely not shy in front of the camera. So um, the YouTube channel has been a, a big theme to my, to my whole story. And especially it demonstrates what I'm saying in such an easy way. Because when you come to something like oh, I can, if you follow my advice, you'll learn, you'll lose 50 pounds in whatever amount of time. It's harder to see the validity of that without a lot of testimonials. But when I tell people that I'm learning this language for the next few months and I give consistent video updates where they can see me literally struggle to say basic things in the language on day one, and then have a basic conversation a month later and have a decent conversation another month later and then be interviewing somebody in the language another month later. This is a very visual, easy to understand thing. So my YouTube channel was essentially demonstrating that. And when I created the blog, one of the goals of the blog was to essentially be a, an easy place to link to to embed a video of me demonstrating this. And I've always been a lot more passionate about making video on my YouTube channel, but I've had the most success with my blog and email list and so on. Mm. So I'm kind of, the last few years that I've been based out of New York, I've done much more uh, offline stuff in terms of trying to make a difference with how the education system 
actually helps with language learning. And now I'm getting back into the online stuff. So I've just set up uh, my own YouTube recording studio and I'm planning to pump out loads of content. I've started playing with TikTok and I got loads of uh, stuff that I've been throwing up there in terms of breaking through and inspiring people to learn a language in, in as silly ways as I can. Mm. It's something I'm genuinely passionate about. So if you were to ask me, you know, what's your strategy and your goal with your YouTube channel, then my honest answer is to have fun and to maybe inspire some people. And maybe I'll reach the stage of being in the millions and millions of subscribers at, you know, whenever that is. And you might ask me, what strategy did I have to get there? And I, I'd have the same <laughs> answer for you, you know? I <laughs> uh, just fell into it, right? Um, <laughs> can you tell us just what does it look like today then? What, what is the company? It, it's you in New York, but I'm, I know you're still traveling because when I first reached out to your assistant, I think you were actually coming to Montreal, where I am right now, if I remember right. But so you're still a digital nomad on, on some regards, and you have, you said, an email person. What does the company look like, and how many things do you sell, or is it just really the main course? Like, what does it look like today? Uh, so today, the main course that we have is a, a single three-month access to a community of people who are also intensively learning a language. So it's essentially reproducing the theme of what I was doing for many, many years of having my own intensive three-month projects, but having the support of the rest of the community also doing it, but also my team who would answer questions on specific issues people get into. And one reason that I've been able to scale it as well as I have is I've tried very hard to make my advice as language agnostic as possible. So a lot of what I talk about is applicable to every language in terms of how to be confident to speak and how to find uh, teachers and so on. And it's not necessarily how to conjugate verbs in Spanish. I don't tend to touch that stuff because that's a lot harder to apply to every single language, obviously. So what that means is I can have the one community and that's my main product. But what has helped a lot is because my audience really trust my advice and because I'm, I genuinely am not out here to make money, I'm, I'm trying to inspire people and I'm enjoying sharing the content. People take what I say quite seriously. So I've actually now reached a stage where even though I have my own product, I earn more affiliating other people's products. Okay. So there are other products that I use myself that do give the content of the language. And it also means I don't have to necessarily worry about that for my audience, but I would refer people to them. And I do it very genuinely. And I I say the pros and cons. I say why I like them. And uh, a couple of them are subscription-based, so that is constantly growing every month. I think I get like 30% referral from one of them, but that's on a monthly rolling basis. And another thing is that I'm, because of my tech background, I really like the back-end tweaking of my email list. So out of the 300,000 that are currently subscribed, I try to have as much useful data as possible on those people in terms of how can I make this email useful for them. So while I have my Friday email blasts, the actual emails that tend to make the money are not the ones I, I send because I'm sending to 300,000 people. It's the ones I send because I'm sending to a very specific subset of those people who I know something very specific about. And as an example, I ask everybody when they sign up first, what language are you learning? And if someone's learning Swahili, 
then they actually are worth more to me per subscriber than someone learning Spanish. Because there's a, a lot of competition with Spanish products. It's a lot harder to convince someone to buy something. Whereas with Swahili, there's so few things that if someone tells me they're learning Swahili, I put them on a very special thread of emails and they see uh, specific Swahili products that I recommend and they're very likely to go and get them. And then I earn from those referrals. Mm. And I, I try to make things as helpful as possible. And it's why when I, when I say I have 300,000 subscribers, really, I mean, it sounds impressive, but the true power that I have is in the lateral data that I have on those people. Mm. Because I might make more money sending an email to just 1,000 of those people than I would to try to blast all 300,000 of them. Mm -hmm. How many segments do you have? Like, is there one for every language? or There's one for every language, and I think I go up to about uh, 60 languages, because it's just tags, so like you, you can use yep. as many as you like. And then I segment it in terms of how long people have been on the list. So, like for instance, upcoming on Black Friday, there's a deal where we, we package all the products I've made over the years. But obviously, if I do that every year, then people are less likely to buy it next year. And it's kind of annoying to see the same offer. So you won't see, you'll never see the same offer. If you've signed up to the email list over the last year, then you'll see that offer. But I think from my own perspective, like how much would I want to get pitched on a list? If I've already been pitched something, I don't really want to be pitched it again. So I segment people in different directions based on that. Mm. Even I found ways within ConvertKit to make my work easier. Like if I were, if I did want to email everybody and there was some way of scaling the actual products like uh, I have one partner who does 30 podcast products that they sell then I can actually write one single email but within that email I can do if else clauses mm. where I can place the, the name of the language that they're learning to be uh, prominently displayed at the top of the email and then I can have a big string of if, if else's for the affiliate link going to that specific language product, but I'm still only writing one email, right. even though 35 different versions of it are going out depending on their language tag. Yeah, that's impressive. Did you put that all together? Like, have you built this massive email marketing machine yourself or over in the terms years? Of, not in terms of the copy. I have somebody who helps me with the copy, but in terms of the the data science, that is something I'm, I'm genuinely interested in myself. And it's related to my language background and I'm the kind of person who likes imagining all of these uh, sets interacting and the unions between sets and so on. So I have these like really complex ideas in mind of I want to be able to email someone who's been on the list for three to four years, who's learning Italian, who's at the intermediate level. And I have all of these ways of, of gathering that data. And then within that email, I can phrase what I'm saying very specifically so instead of starting an email with, hey, do you like learning languages? I'm starting it with, oh, isn't it hard to be an intermediate Italian learner despite being at it for three plus years? And, and that really makes a big difference because people feel like the email is a lot more tailored to them. And everything I say in the email is going to be more relevant whenever I get to that level of macro detail. Instead of writing the one generic email, I would put the effort in especially because we only have so many products available for the top five languages and it's worth going the extra mile. Mm. So I want to make sure when someone signs up to the email list that they're going to get the best advice possible 
And they wouldn't get that if I was sending every one of them, all 300,000, the exact same pitches. Right, of course. So in a given week, how many, like, obviously you have your newsletter on a Friday, but is there a lot of, like, 60 different individual streams of content, or even more, because that's just the languages. You're also talking about time on list, like your system is automatically sending. Like, it sounds like you're running a huge publishing company when you describe it that way. Oh, it, it truly is. And it's it's one of the reasons that I actually had to switch away from Infusionsoft was because they charged me her email that I sent. Mm -hmm. And I send a lot of emails because I have so many people. And again, it's an individual will not get that many emails from me. They may, they'll get like two weeks worth of emails when they first sign up. And then once a week and maybe once a month, there'll be a, an email specific to their needs. But because I used all of these different segments so intensively, I send a lot of emails. I wouldn't even be know where to start to, to, to guess at how much it is. Mm. But it's enough that I needed to leave one system because they I was constantly reaching my monthly limit of emails sent, even though at the time I was maybe at 60,000 subscribers mm -hmm. on, on their system. So um, I was still reaching whatever their maximum is. So I send a lot of emails based on those very specific criteria. And yeah, it's essentially a publishing company. The Behind the scenes, unless you're on the email list, you'll never see it. And even if you're on the email list, you'll only ever see what's tailor-made to you. And, and I like that because on the internet, you see the majority of what I do is to encourage people to learn languages. And I, I don't want to come across as someone pitching products and who, who says you can't learn a language unless you buy my shit. And that's, that's what it comes down to is I want people to have this good impression that I genuinely want to help them. And then if I do share products with them, it's going to be as useful and specific as possible. Mm. What's a day in the life for you right now, Benny? Are you still you know, making the videos, writing the emails as you travel the world? Right now, I, I decided to take this year to kind of slow things down a little bit because I created quite a big backlog in taking on so many projects over the years. So this year I'm catching up on my backlog. And then next year I hope to get into travels again. But I'm mostly trying to set up a really good YouTube recording studio here. And I'm even getting like props for my videos so I can really have fun with them. I've also been learning lots of advanced video editing because one thing about doing what I've done is obviously people have thought it's such a great business idea that I've had a lot of copycats. Yeah, but, so there yeah. are quite a lot of people who, one guy even essentially ripped my entire web design, where like literally the picture of his face was exactly in the same layout as where my face was on my blog, and everything was the same. So I do need to innovate, otherwise I could get swallowed up by those people, because uh, if they're doing the same thing I'm doing, even if it was my idea first, it's not like I have any copyright on being a language blogger. Right. So my current goal is to focus a bit more on my YouTube channel and to make it as entertaining and professional looking as possible in terms of having, I've learned loads of After Effects, special processes I can do to my videos. I've got a nice crisp camera. I've got good lighting. I'm thinking of a storyboard for my videos. So I'm, I'm really trying to make the videos more entertaining, mm. whereas previously they were more vlog style. And I think the vlog style nowadays, that works fine as an Instagram story. And I, I would do that, obviously. But I want my YouTube channel to really be like a, almost a TV show style 
and that's kind of what I'm working towards. Okay, very cool. Uh, so last question before we kind of wrap it up, Benny. You know, you just mentioned competition, and you're, I can imagine you're so right in your space. I remember even growing up, everyone at one point was going to travel to Japan and teach English. It was just like language learning and teaching was the, the, the go-to, I don't know what to do with my life job. So that would no doubt spur all kinds of competitors. But not even in just your space. There's like every, I think, every person who's thinking of starting a business has that, oh, it's too late. There's too many other people doing this. They're too uh, along the development curve. You know, they're polished. For the person listening to your story, which is, let's let's face it, it's a long one now. It's, you know, over a decade. They're thinking, well, all those things. I'm too late to the game. There's too much competition. How would you advise them to start both from, you know, a mindset point of view to get over those hurdles, but also from a practical standpoint? Like, would you suggest start a blog or start a YouTube channel or start an email list or, you know, what would you advise them? Well, in terms of what to start, I would definitely advise them to test a couple of things out and see what they truly enjoy. Because if you don't like doing what you're doing, your audience is going to perceive that and you're not going to be able to maintain it. So if someone were to tell you a blog is the thing you absolutely should do, you've tried it and you don't like writing blog posts, then that's not for you. Maybe making quick videos on TikTok is going to be what ends up being your money-making opportunity. We never really know until we try. And I would encourage people to try as many things as possible. One of my major philosophies in life in business and learning is I aim to make at least 200 mistakes a day. And that way I know I'm trying something out and I'm learning. So um, I would absolutely recommend that. And whichever tool, like, I, you know, back in 2009, blogging was the obvious one. Maybe it's not as obvious nowadays, but then maybe it is. It, it will really depend on the person. And then what was the other thing you asked me? Just the mindset around getting over the, the idea of too much competition and you know, you're too late. Yeah, so I, again, I got this kind of mentality when I started in 2009 that I was too late because essentially I was a category of a travel blog because I was giving travel stories and travel pictures through the blog that I was making. But I put my own spin on it. And even nowadays, when people have like definitely replicated what I do, they have their own intensive language projects. They have a lot of what I've done has been has been copied. I'm still thinking, what is the unique spin that I can put on it? And when I look at all of these people, some of them are are cleverer than I am. They they actually come from language learning backgrounds, and their videos are very interesting in terms of what they talk about. But to be honest, uh, having met a lot of them, I would say I'm probably the silliest among all of them. <laughs> and there are, there are actual language entrepreneur conferences and polyglot conferences that I go to, and I meet all of these people, and they are smarter than me in so many ways. But I am someone who takes risks, who doesn't mind making mistakes, who gets myself out there. So that is what's unique about me, and how can I put that into my message and my content? So I can be bold in how I write my blog post, like I already mentioned. I can be silly in my videos and I can wear costumes because I know these people from a more academic background are definitely not likely to do that. And like how, when people are listening to this, even if you think it's a completely uh, filled space, there are still ways you can make it unique. My friend, Steve Camp, he writes about fitness. Fitness is one of the most saturated spaces in the world. But when he started it, he came up with the idea of putting his personal nerdy spin on fitness 
and he started nerdfitness.com and now it's a huge website with great success. And it's even in that saturated niche, he knows what way he could do it uniquely. And even in a language learning niche, which is a very competitive place to be, I still have my unique spin on it. So someone else can think of their unique spin, it may be your personality, it may be your expertise, it may be your video editing style or something else. You can make that work. Or you can even double down on your particular skill and maybe you know somebody who is very skilled in something else, like they are a very good copywriter, a good marketer, and join your forces and launch with their talents as well. So that's kind of what I would say that yes, it can feel like it's saturated, but it's not saturated in the specific niche that maybe you can be the unique voice in. Mm. Yeah, good advice, Benny. And I, I think all those examples you gave, that individuality is the differentiation factor. So once you get clear on that and something you love expressing, like perhaps your silliness, <laughs> it's something you get to enjoy exploring and using as a, a marketing advantage too. We've mentioned a lot of websites, Benny. I know you obviously got fluentin3months.com as your, your main brand, but where do you want to direct people to, both for the language learners and just anyone who wants to see what you're doing? Sure. Uh, so for the language learners, if you go to YouTube and search for Fluent in Three Months, you'll see a channel with that name. But then in terms of my more entertaining videos where I kind of want to inspire people more than instruct them, just look for my name, Benny Lewis, on YouTube. And you will see a lot bursting out there. I'm also experimenting with TikTok and I'm having a lot of fun with that. So just look for Irish Polyglot, I-R-I-S-H-P-O-L-Y-G-L-O-T. On that, on Twitter, on Instagram, I really like pumping out stuff and putting a silly spin on it so that it's as entertaining as possible. So people can find me all over the place that way. Awesome. Thank you, Benny. Anything else you want to throw out before we wrap up the interview? I would really encourage people to stop waiting for the perfect circumstances. And something I said in one of my TEDx talks that really hit home for a lot of people was there are seven days in a week and someday is not one of them. <laughs> so stop waiting, stop thinking that people like me had some grand plan. I am still making this up as I go, and I am definitely making mistakes, and we, I could have a six-hour-long podcast interview about all the mistakes that I've made, but that is why I'm successful, because I've gotten those mistakes out of my system. I've also found the ways that work. Awesome, Benny. Thank you for your time and sharing your story. I really appreciate uh, going into the, the details and also the inspiring advice there to end the show. Keep doing what you're doing. I love your, uh, your email segmentation. That gets me excited, but also the, you know, what you're doing for people learning languages. So keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Yaro's podcast. For more episodes, visit yaro.blog and subscribe on iTunes or Google.